to even talk about this man's life is a source of shame for us as Christians. Because hidden in the story is the reason why we fall. Why we deny him. When we hear the story of Judas, I think that we tend to think that he's in this category of his own. Like, there's nobody in the church like him. Because he's the one that betrayed Jesus. And we fail to remember that all the apostles betrayed Jesus. So why talk about Judas tonight? Because when we come before the awesome power of the sacrament of confession, we can do one of two things. We can either turn toward it and embrace the fact that we have failed, that we are in need of mercy, and again return to the Lord and try again. Or we can turn away from Him, as Judas did. And so as we ponder on this man tonight, who really is a symbol of us at our worst, let us pray. Lord Jesus, with your permission tonight, I wish to look into the life of one of your apostles. One who you chose to be an apostle, not a traitor. He became a traitor. But you chose him to be great. And how great he would have been if he would have turned back to you and sought your mercy. We pray for all of your faithful gathered here tonight. That they may turn to you with all their hearts. And receive your mercy so that you may heal their wounds and they may know that they are not alone in their struggle. We ask this through the intercession of Mary, the mother of mercy, as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we look at the 12 apostles, right? And the last one in every list is Judas. And as I said in the prayer, Jesus didn't choose him to be a traitor. It's very important to remember that. Many people think that Judas was just set up. Like, the guy was just chosen to be the fall man for Jesus so the redemption of the world could happen. And that is not the case. Jesus was chosen to be an apostle, and quite honestly, if you look at his life story, I think he was chosen to be the greatest of the apostles. The absolute greatest. He would have outshone every single other apostle. Imagine. Imagine Judas, you coming to confession to Judas. Yeah, I've done some terrible things. Yeah, well, I sold Jesus to the Romans and put him to death. So, beat that. You're not gonna. Imagine the power that that man would have had if he simply would have just turned around and gone back to the Lord. He and Peter would have been an unstoppable force. But Judas didn't choose that. He's a mysterious man. His last name was Iscariot. It gives us some, maybe some idea into his life. Some biblical theologians say that it comes from the word Sicarius, which means dagger. Many people think, oh, dagger, he's, you know, this betrayer, he's this murderer. No, no, no. He was probably a zealot. He was one of the ones that fought the Romans. So yeah, there's a chance that Judas could have killed people. 
He might have been a revolutionary, sort of political theologian. His whole family was involved in it. That's why they got the last name. But one thing's for sure, he was more interested in getting the Romans out of Israel than getting Christ and his love into the hearts of the faithful. There's a second century testimony that states he was the nephew of Caiaphas. Caiaphas, as you remember, was the high priest during Jesus' trial. So what's the reason for his failure? Why did he defect? Why did he betray? Again, modern scripture scholarship, which isn't worth much these, this day, said that he was a lover of money. Right? And they based this off of a couple things. Number one, he sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But more than that, there's a scene, and I don't remember if you remember this scene, but Jesus is having supper with this Pharisee. His name is Simon. And while they're having supper, this woman, who tradition holds as Mary Magdalene, comes into the supper, kneels at the feet of Jesus, and begins to weep and wash his feet with her tears. Now remember, she's a prostitute. This is a scandal for the Jewish people. And it is at the same time that that Mary Magdalene takes, it says, a bottle of perfume, costly perfume. And it even tells us how much that perfume costs. It cost a year's year's worth of wages. Ladies, you ever bought perfume like that? We're talking $20,000 probably for this perfume. And as you remember, in this story, right, Simon the Pharisee kind of, it says he's, Jesus knew his thoughts and he was thinking to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is. My question is, is how does Simon know? Maybe, maybe Simon graced her presence a few times late in the middle of the night. He knew her. And as she kneels and weeps on Jesus' feet, she takes the perfume. And she doesn't just give a little drop, like all of us would, very sparingly. It says she breaks the alabaster jar. And takes it and pours it out in love and anoints Jesus' feet. $20,000. It's a pretty good chance that that $20,000 was all the money she ever made as a prostitute. And she was so sick of living in that prison. She was so sick of living that lie that she went to the only place that she knew she could really receive forgiveness. Everybody looked at her and said, look at her. Look at how dirty she is, how terrible she is. She went to the one place where she knew mercy would be offered. And she gave everything to him. It is at the same time that she breaks this very costly ointment and offers it as a gift to Jesus. That Judas, Judas says, why this waste? Why this waste? That perfume could have been sold because he knew the price of it for 300 days wages and that money could have been given to the poor. What a waste. You see, Judas Judas knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. 
He didn't understand that there were different types of poverty, not just material poverty. And John tells us later on in his gospel, he was a thief. He didn't care about the perfume. He cared about the money. He surely didn't care about the poor. There will always be those who protest about giving anything to glorify God. To build a beautiful church. To build an adoration chapel. To buy a beautiful chalice to hold his sacred blood. What a waste, they will say. And what is even more frustrating is most of the time, these people who say it's a waste and you need to give it to the poor, don't give anything. Because they know the price of everything and the value of nothing. There was a priest in our diocese, I won't tell you who because you know who he is. But he was uh, giving a tour of St. Peter's Basilica. And if you've ever been to St. Peter's, you know, this whole church would fit in the upper dome of St. Peter's. It is gargantuan. You cannot believe how big it is until you get inside of it. And as he was touring around and showing the treasures of this Roman basilica, this one man said, Father, I just got a question for you. And he's like, what's that? And he said, why this? Think how many people we could have helped if we wouldn't have used all the money to build this. And this priest very wittingly responded. He said, you know what? Someone else said that. I don't remember. Oh, no, I do. It was Judas. <laughs> you know how many souls have been converted simply by stepping foot into St. Peter's Basilica? You know how many hearts have been punctured simply by staring at the Pieta of Michelangelo? You know how many confessions have been heard? How many papal masses have been celebrated? How many people from the world who aren't even Catholic come to that place simply to see it and be moved by beauty? Because there are different types of poverty in this world. Mother Teresa said that she never experienced a greater poverty than the poverty of America. The richest country in the world. Because it was a poverty of love. She said they don't love, they just work. Ego-centered people driven to power and pleasure. But little love. So there are different kinds of poverty. Modernize it a little bit. Judas, in our day and age, would have been like, I heard you on the Mount of Beatitudes. I heard you say, blessed are the poor. Where's your love of the poor now? Dining with this rich man. You don't remember all the poor we've met on this journey? I've never seen you carry a banner of protest against the Sanhedrin. Where's your love of social justice? And you use that word waste. What a waste. In Greek, you know what that word translates to? Perdition. Perdition, which is what Jesus calls him in the gospel. The son of perdition. He is the son of waste. Because he sold Christ for his own gain. The greatest act of waste ever. And yet how many follow? Doesn't this sound like the modern Christian? So focused on politics and the economy and their job and their pursuits and their hobbies. But in the midst of all this they've forgotten the Lord. Wasting their lives. 
in the pursuit of the world. So we can see why people think that the reason why Judas fell was because of money, but I don't think it was because of money. And there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, mainly because there's a lot of wealthy people in the church that don't leave the church. In fact, I know very wealthy people who are very generous to the church. Heroic generosity. And on top of that, greed is the sin of all men. We all suffer from it. The key to understanding the whole thing starts at the first mention of Judas's betrayal. And that is announced in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. And everybody says, well, Jesus meant that symbolically. He didn't really mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's why, you know, we have symbolically. I just read tonight, um, I was watching this documentary earlier in the week on uh, Apollo 11. The mission to the moon, the moon, where we landed on the moon. Did you know that Buzz Aldrin, who was a Presbyterian, the first thing he did when they landed on the moon was took out his little Protestant communion kit and took communion. That was hidden from everybody for decades until he wrote his memoirs. He said, the first thing I wanted to do was give thanks to God. And the first words of Apollo 8, I'm really into Apollo missions, just in case you didn't know. And I'm a little ADHD, I'm a little off topic right now, but... The first words of the Apollo 8 mission were, they said, we have one thing to say to you, all you inhabitants of earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's happened? You would never hear that. Our Mars mission is not going to reference God in the creation. He didn't mean it symbolically. If you meant it symbolically, it wouldn't have been a hard teaching. If you, li- if you read John chapter 6, it says that after he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, everybody said, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, you got to explain that. You don't really mean eat my flesh and drink my blood, do you? And he's like, okay, let me, I'm paraphrasing Jesus on the scriptures here, but this is how it went. And he's like, okay, but let me clarify for you. What I meant to say was, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. He says the exact same thing again. And what we miss, what we don't catch is that little Greek word, because we only have one word for eating. That Greek word changes from trogain to phagain. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. The first time he says, unless you eat it like you would eat food. And they say, Jesus, you don't mean that. You've got to be talking symbolically. You've got to clarify for the clarify for us. And he says, okay, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. Fogging. And that word means to tear flesh off of a bone. What's he doing? They're asking him for clarification. He's intensifying his language. That he really means eat my flesh and drink my blood. Let me ask you a question. If he meant this symbolically, is this a hard teaching? No, it's not a hard teaching. He said a lot of things symbolically. I am the vine. You are the branches. He didn't mean he was a literal vine. Nobody said this is a really hard teaching. They saw it as a figure of speech. He said, I am a gate. He's not a literal gate. Nobody questioned that. But when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, everybody freaks out. And they say, you can't possibly mean this. And it gets so bad that people leave. 
They leave. They walk away. And you guys, I don't know if you understand this, but a disciple, one who followed the master, right? A disciple in the ancient world was not just like, like you coming to mass. A disciple was you left everything. You left your family, your work, your pursuits, everything, and you followed the master. So when these people leave over this teaching, it's not just like they're like, man, that was a bad homily. They are literally saying, he's crazy. I can't follow him. This is too much. And Jesus lets him walk. I don't know if you know this. I might even have said this in homilies before. But that, that line where it says, and because of this teaching, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life. Is John chapter 6, verse 66. Coincidence? I don't know. And then he turns to Peter and the apostles. He says, you guys going to leave? He doesn't sit there and say, hey, time out, time out, time out. Come back, come back. I was kidding. Symbol, symbol, symbol. He watches them walk away and then he turns to the church, the original 12, and say, what are you guys going to do? And Peter answers for him. And God loved Peter. Because he says, Lord, I don't understand it. He says, but if you say it's true, it's true. That's all I know. I don't get it. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how it happens. But I know you're God. And if you say that it can happen, I trust that it will happen. And that's enough. And then Jesus says this. Did I not choose 12 of you to be my apostles? And yet, one of you is a devil. That's John chapter 6. This is way early in his ministry. And Judas is already beginning to turn. And why is he turning? Why is he leaving? Because all those people are walking away. The apostles staying in Judas's heart. He doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe in the Eucharist. He's there out of obligation. He's been chosen. I guess I have to come and follow this man. We forget about how amazing the Eucharist is. They just did a study, I don't know if you know this, but they found that 27% of Catholics believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. 27%. That's a quarter. That's, that's less than half. And we wonder why we have no power. The fact is is that 75% of people don't believe the source and summit of everything we believe. That we receive God on Sunday. Not bread, not wine, God. Remember Monsignor Richter said that one time. He said, I wish instead of saying the body of Christ, when people come up, we just said, God, God, God. (laughs) There's a certain degree of truth to that. And how many people are just like, amen, whatever, leave early, walk out, talk, chew gum. This is the greatest gift that God ever gave to us. So if that's where the break began, where did it actually finish? I think it's when Jesus gave the Eucharist to the apostles. 
There were different placements at the supper. I don't know if you know this. For the Last Supper, it was almost in like a U-shape, the, the table. And the place of honor during the time of Jesus was not to the right. It was to the left. And Judas was sitting to his left. Why? Because Jesus was doing everything in his power to save him. He didn't want Judas to betray him. He wanted him to be saved. So he put him in the place of honor. And then he put John, his beloved disciple, on his right. And next to him would have been Peter. And the reason we know this is because Peter asked John. So he has to be sitting next to him. And it says John was sitting next to the Lord. And we know that Judas is sitting next to him because it says that he dips the morsel and gives it to him. He's sitting right next to him. And then Jesus says this. One of you will betray me. I want you to imagine just for a moment to be in that Last Supper room. I want you to be sitting there with Jesus. Celebrating the great feast of Passover. It's supposed to be a joyous occasion. And what you hear is, one of you will betray me. Ten said, is it I, Lord? One said, who is it, Lord? And one said, surely it's not I, teacher. Teacher. Is that all Jesus was to Judas, a teacher? He had no idea who he was. He underestimated Jesus just as we underestimate him. We say he's sort of a guru. He's just kind of this, you know, gentleman that loves everybody, is accepting, doesn't care what you've done. Everybody's going to heaven. We don't know him. Because if we knew him, we would know that he said, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. None of the apostles knew who the betrayer was either. That's telling. Which tells us, it tells us that none of us is faithful enough to say that we will never deny the Lord. All of them wondered if it was them. They all wondered. They all said, is it Is it me? I don't ever want to do that. Is it me, Lord? And then Jesus toasts Judas by handing him the greatest gift that he can give him. His own flesh and blood. The first communion. And what does Judas do? He takes it and he leaves. He takes it and he leaves. Think about how many Catholics are like Judas. They don't know what they're receiving. They don't pray. They don't care. They receive what they think is of real no significance, and then they head back out into the world after their own egocentric worldly pursuits. Leaving the church early, no gratitude, only entitlement. And then Jesus turns to Judas and says... What you are about to do, do quickly. At this point, there is no more saving him. Maybe if Judas would have repented and said, Jesus, you know that I'm not worthy of the Eucharist. 
But Judas looked him straight in the face and took it. How many with sin on their soul look the priest right in the face on Sunday and say amen? It's got to be a lot because few go to confession. And nothing drives me nuts more than when somebody says, I'm not that bad. Father, I'm not that bad. I haven't really done anything. I can't go a day. (laughs) John Paul II went to confession once a week. Mother Teresa went to confession once a week. Why? Because they were terrible sinners? No, because they understood that the closer they got to Christ, they, they saw their imperfections. And little stuff became big stuff. No matter what it is, no matter how small it is, sin is deadly. Do we really believe that? And then we get to bear the most troubling words maybe in the entire scripture. As Judas leaves, there's one sentence that is just eerie. It says, and it was night. It is always night when you leave the Lord. And scripture adds, and Satan entered into him. That Judas was literally possessed. What is interesting about this is that the other apostles didn't know he was. There seemingly was nothing different about him. Scripture even says that they thought he was going out to buy food for the poor for the Passover. He looked like a sacristan, a social worker. He looked good. He looked holy. He was probably in his Saturday best. And yet Satan was in him. And then Jesus says, now the hour has come. Peter, James, and John stay here, watch and pray. Three times he went looking for companionship, and three times he found them asleep. If there is one thing that will save you from leaving Jesus, I am convinced of this. It is praying. And I'm not talking every once in a while. I'm talking daily. As I said last night, a half hour a day. Because if you pray, you'll know him. Jesus says, get up. The enemy's coming when they're in the garden. And the Greek word is spira. It means 200 men. Imagine this. 200 men, full-armed guards, come to arrest one man. Why so many? I'm sure because Judas said that he's not going out without a fight. And again, Judas didn't know him. And Jesus doesn't fight. He comes out and faces his enemy. He doesn't cower in the corner. And that's probably why it said Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Because they thought he'd be hiding. So he had to go find him. And he had to point out exactly who he was. And it doesn't even say the word that they use for the kiss is katafaline. It means he covered him with kisses. So they would be 100% sure who it was. 
And he says, hail, rabbi. Not Lord, not God, rabbi. For Judas, Jesus is nothing more than a teacher. So why do we leave? Why do we get slack? Why do we settle for mediocrity? Why do we lose faith? We can have come up with a thousand different reasons. But there is only one. We, the church is too rich. The church doesn't love women. The church is full of scandal. The church isn't progressive enough. The coffee's too cold. The donuts are stale. In the end, it is one thing. We stopped praying. And we stopped believing in the Eucharist. We dropped the beads. Quit saying the rosary. We gave up private prayer. We gave up confession, put our faith on cruise control, lived a mediocre life. I'm not that bad. This is the biblical story of why we fail. And just as there was a predictability about Judas, there is also a predictability with us. One can easily tell when a defection from our Lord is coming, and it happens when one begins to doubt the Eucharist. This is why Jesus could foretell Judas's betrayal. And in the end, what's Judas left with? 30 pieces of silver. We always get something when we betray the Lord. We always get something when we sell him out and we never like it. Whatever we got, Hollywood, fame, a number one hit song, money, power, pleasure, a new house. Whatever it is, we begin to hate it. He takes the 30 pieces of silver. He throws them back at the Jewish leaders and says, I've betrayed innocent blood. And then instead of seeking forgiveness, he turns inward and despairs. And part of me, you guys, for a long time, I felt really bad for Judas. I mean, he even says, he goes and he says, he confesses. I have betrayed innocent blood. Take it back. I don't want it. He literally is feeling remorse for what he's done. But we have to believe that Judas was given every single opportunity to repent. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Passion. But one of my favorite scenes in there. There's a lot of great scenes in there. But one of my favorite ones is when Judas is hiding underneath the bridge. And Jesus is getting beat on top of the bridge and they hit him so hard that he falls over the bridge and falls down and they got him with ropes and he drops and he just catches with the rope and he's laying there, dripping blood, barely able to breathe. And Judas looks at him and Jesus Jesus looks at him with these eyes of incredible mercy. And Judas runs. We don't know if that scene actually happened. But in the Old Testament, in the ancient Jewish world, if when you did, when you committed a sin, if a person looked you in the face afterwards and made eye contact with you, it meant they forgave you. If they didn't, it meant they didn't. This is why it's so important, and this is why Peter falls apart when it says, the third time he says, I don't know the man. And it said, the cock crowed, and Jesus looked at him. 
It wasn't because Jesus was looking to say, you little son of a... I told you you were going to do it. And I caught you. No, he looked at Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter because he wanted Peter to know right then and there he was forgiven. And that's why Peter weeps. That's why he goes out and says, tradition holds that Peter had furrows in his cheeks because he wept so much for what he had done. And as Bishop Sheen so eloquently said, Judas got his cheek, but Peter got his eyes. The Lord wanted to forgive him. But Judas couldn't think of anybody else but himself. Jesus gave him every opportunity. And at the end of our lives, we're going to see that Jesus gave us every opportunity to turn back to him. And we will either have to live with the consequence of saying, we did it, and we'll live with him forever, or we're going to have to live with the consequence of saying, I didn't do it. I chose me. My wants, my wishes, my desires, my pursuits. He tried. The judgment of Christ is not going to be this time when you get to defend yourself. He's not going to show you something and say, you did that. You're like, no, I didn't. He is truth itself. Whatever you see will be truth. And there is nothing you can do but admit to it. How many times has Christ tried to break into your life? And you haven't let him. Because of fear, because of sin, because of whatever. I think when it comes to Judas, a lot of us are like, I can't believe he did it. He was with him for three years. He saw him walk on water. He saw him raise the dead. How could you do it? And yet we forget about ourselves. Judas hadn't seen him rise from the dead. We have. And how have we responded? What have we done? How have we given back for that? And so Judas takes a rope and he hangs himself. Because he experienced complete despair. When you follow your own ego, it will only lead to despair. When you turn back for mercy, that's how saints are made. Judas got lost in that lie that life is about me. It's not about you. I don't care what this culture says. This life is not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. His pursuits. His teaching. His love. Getting into us so we can get it to other people. How are we going to be merciful if we don't know mercy? How are we going to forgive if we, if we haven't been forgiven? 
Because in the end, as I said last night, Jesus is going to give us what we desire most. And it's either going to be him or ourselves. And we will know it based on how we live. I don't know if you know Gabriel Morth. He's, uh, he passed away two, two years ago. He was the head exorcist for Rome. He did, uh, performed over 60,000 exorcisms in his lifetime. Saw some really crazy stuff. If you want a really creepy book to read, it's called An Exorcist Tells a Story by Gabriel Amorth. You will not believe what he has encountered. But he said, he told this story where he was working with a possessed man. He was talking to the demon. And he said, whenever we, 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 whenever we encounter the demon, we try to learn more. So we have more power over them. And he asked this question. He said to the demon, he said, suppose he was trying to figure out hell so he could explain hell to people. And he said, suppose hell, or two people, hated each other their whole life. They just hated each other. They, they, they keyed each other's cars and they stole from each other and they beat each other up and they blew up each other's houses and I don't know. It is hatred, hatred, hatred until they died. He said, in hell, will they hate each other for the rest of eternity? In the name of Jesus Christ, answer me. And the demon said, you are so stupid, priest. See, the devil always has to get a little jab because he has to answer. He has to obey. He said, you're so stupid, priest. You don't understand hell at all. Down here, everyone lives caved in upon themselves. Torn apart by their regrets. There is no relationship with anyone. Hell is like a cemetery. You're alone. Now, when I think of hell, when I used to think of hell, it was a bunch of people running around naked, screaming in fire. And if that was hell, at least we would have each other. Right? This is terrible. Yeah, I know this is terrible. I can't believe I should have done At least we'd have relationship. Imagine if what this demon is saying is true. And maybe even some of you have been here. When you're so alone, you feel like you have nothing. Imagine that for eternity. Simply because... You didn't take Jesus at his word. I don't know about you, but I hate being alone. And to be alone for eternity, and the only thing that you can think about is the demon said, you're torn apart by your regrets. The only thoughts you have is everything you screwed up. All the people that you hurt. All the evil that you caused. And he's right because there is no good anymore. There's no God. The only thoughts you have are your own. Forever. And so my friends, the great lesson that Judas Iscariot teaches us is that we can sell Christ, but we can never buy him. The tragedy of this life was that Judas was meant to be Saint Judas Iscariot. And the tragedy of our lives 
will be if we don't become a saint. But he chose to leave the Lord. And he did it through a series of choices. What will be your choice? Not just tonight, but for the rest of your life. I invite you tonight to stay for adoration if you can. To go to confession if it's been a while. To receive mercy. To start fresh. So that on Easter Sunday you can receive that resurrected life into your heart and give it to others. What will we do? What will we do?